I invite you to take them with me, please, and turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. I was just talking with a dear friend and before the service here, and I, <clears throat> I think one thing that is amiss in our Christianity is uh, one thing that hinders it anyways, is that when you're a second generation Christian, how many of you have heard the jo story of Jonah 15 times in Sunday school? And you know what it talks about. The reality is, no, you don't. There is so much there that we, we just know the story. Jonah was a bad guy. Jonah disobeyed God. God made him obey him. He pouted. And Nineveh repented. Well, <clears throat> that, there's truth in that. But there is so much more than that in Jonah. Jonah is a very, and I did not realize this, but Jonah is a very peculiar book. <clears throat> Jonah, when you think of Jonah, we, we, we think about a what? A fish, exactly. Or a whale. Absolutely, that's what we think about. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like God is mentioned 28 times. Jonah is mentioned uh, 22 times and a fish three. Well, there's that. Um, <clears throat> what's peculiar about it is how it's written. People don't write like he writes it. It's very peculiar. We discussed at nauseum about the problems with the way it's written. And the problem is, 100%, no question about it, the problem is, is he never gives a reason why he doesn't, why he's fleeing the presence of God. He doesn't. In the first three chapters, it gives nothing that he says. And to be honest with you, it gives nothing of what God is saying. I mean, it's not like they're arguing. It's just actions. How many understand this? Jonah's going to do this. God does this. Jonah replies this. God does this. It's back and forth and back. And forth. They're arguing and debating with no words. How many think that's very peculiar? How many of you debate with no words on a regular basis? How in the world? I mean, you go to speech class and say, well, I'm going to debate, but I'm going to use the Jonah style. How's that going to work? <laughs> You're not going to be able to debate. Debating is usually understood in our minds as a language thing, a speech thing. So Jonah was given a command and if you remember, I think this is important to re remember this, come up, rose up, went down, went down. Remember those words? They're used over and over and over and over again. It's kind of interesting. We'll, we'll come to some more words like that. 
that tend to be viewed as obstacles in Jonah's desire to follow the Lord's commands. The Bible says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. There's one thing, command is given. But Jonah, what did he do? I don't want to, God. Does he say that? Not that we're told in the first chapter, or the second chapter, or the third chapter. There's nothing there. There is a reason there's nothing there. So what did he do? He rose up. By the way, when God says, come up, is he obeying when he rose up? They're using the exact same Hebrew words here. In rose up. Uh, rose up and come up. Same word, same. He's obeying, but that isn't true the very next word, right? He rose up, but he rose up to go exactly opposite of what God said. He rose up to flee to Tarshish, and then the author of the book, which we believe is Jonah, he does give a sense of what it is. He says, okay, I am fleeing Tarshish because what? He says it like three times here in this chapter. How many think it's important if he says it three times, that's an important issue? And he does. He sleeps from the presence of the Lord. So instead of going up, he goes down to Joppa. He found a ship was going to Tarsus, paid the fare, and went down into the go with them to Tarsus. From what? From where did he go? This is the second time we find it. The presence of the Lord. And we, the practical application is do we not proclaim God's mercy through Christ to those who we think do not deserve it? What's the answer? <coughs> it's unbiblical not to, right? It's disobedience not to. Do we not proclaim God's grace through his son's sacrifice on the cross for our incurable sin problem because of self-preservation? Are those two questions invasive to our hearts because how many of us do that obviously <clears throat> there's probably not a person in here who doesn't or hasn't done that at some time I'm afraid what people will do to me I'm afraid what they'll say to me we talked about last week Jonah's actions against God Jonah's actions were that he rose up to flee from the presence of God. He went down and went down to flee from the presence of God. We found out where Tarshish was, what it probably is. Again, there is, that's the other thing. The more I've studied the book of Jonah, the more I realize people's opinions are Flooding common preaching, and that's a problem. And we know that all this took place in the Middle East. So, what we understand from Jonah's, from the author's mouth, which we believe is Jonah, 
He was fleeing away from the presence of God. God told him to do something, and now he's fleeing away. So, in just a second, we're going to find out what that actually means. But last week, we found out that, number one, because he doesn't tell us a motive, it's jumping to motive judgment to say he's got this motive or that motive or that motive. And we as Christians need to stop judging motives because we're always wrong or mostly wrong. And by the way, God says it. The only person that can rightly judge motives is who? God. There's no one else that can judge motives. Why? He's the only one who knows the heart. Judging motives belongs to God exclusively. And here's the reality. In, the, in reality, in, in the end of this book, when we're done with it, we're going to realize that Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted to do. In other words, he, in essence, disagreed with God and said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. At bare minimum, that's what he did. <clears throat> At bare minimum, he played God. He did. And bare minimum, he played the role of God. And unfortunately, many people play the role of God, and it's wrong. We are not to be judging motives. It's interesting. And that's the point of the interest, what this book did. And I bet you most of us never even knew this. Jonah doesn't say anything until the last chapter. To God. To God. He doesn't. It's all his actions. And yet, immediately, you go to chapter 1, and you listen to any sermon you want to, and they've got motives all over the place. All over the place. How many have ever read a commentary on Jonah? They're full of motives. Jonah's actions were opposite of God's command. No question. And that's all we know from chapter 1 and 2 and 3. His actions are opposite of God's commands. Totally opposite. Jonah, from the author's voice, we believe is Jonah, is fleeing from the presence of God. That's If there's any motive in chapters 1 through 3, that's the only one given. Fleeing from the God's presence. That's all it's written. Now, once we understand that, we talked about that last week, now what does God do? God comes down and says, Jonah, what's wrong with you? Is that what he does? Absolutely not. Jonah 1, 4, 8 says God's response to Jonah's flight. What is it? In the classical Hebrew, which is so cool, the Lord hurled a great wind. In other words, you could say it this way. God, meanwhile, while Jonah is running away actions, God did actions. He debated Jonah with actions. How many see this? There's no words there. He literally says, God hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. 
the shifts this shifts the attention from Jonah's actions and goes right to God's actions. By the way, is there an escalation of tension between God and Jonah via God throwing a storm or a wind? This is so unique. It's so unique. This is a unique way of confrontation in this narrative. It's actions instead of words. In essence, Jonah acts in defiance. God replies in kind the same way. It's interesting, this word, and we're going to play with some, or not play with it. We're going to show you some of these words and give you some neat little tidbits about it. And then we'll get um, into the text specifically. Not that these aren't in the text, they're in there, you can follow along. The Bible says God flung. How many have a different word besides flung? What's that? Sent out. The the Greek, the Greek, I'm sorry. The Hebrew there literally has the idea of throwing a sword, it's or throwing a spear. It's the same word. Flung means throwing a spear. That's what he he literally threw a wind at Jonah. And it's a kind of a nasty wind. And to be honest with you, God is using the same word because he's using the same word as a spear. It's almost as if God is suggesting he is assuming the role of a warrior. This is a battle between God and Jonah. The projectile of choice in this case, however, is a wind instead of a spear. The wind, therefore, is God's weapon of choice, if you will. And this wind expresses God's wrath at Jonah's rejection of his commission. The wind And the storm is provoked, and the storm it provoked in the Mediterranean Sea were like a warning shot across the bow, pun totally intended. The divine warrior chastised his prophet as he nudged Jonah toward a new frontier of divine mercy. God's wind sets the turmoil that is about to commence. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of flunging going on. And we'll see this because there's, this is evident with the repetition of that same word. The next text that we will see this morning is that Jonah tells the guys on the ship, the mariners, because that's what was on the ship, to fling him over the side of the boat. And eventually they flung him over the side of the boat. Have you read so many flungs in your life? They're all over. The point of this chain of reaction is that God has orchestrated a series of events that places both Jonah and the mariners entirely on the mercy of God. It was no ordinary wind that God flung toward the sea. The Bible, and this is so interesting, so we have the word flung where it was right there, right there, and then a little bit later when they do actually throw them. So these are verses four or five of what we 
pray we can get through this morning. But it was a great wind. Do you see this? A great wind. Say, well, okay, so what? Well, if you were to look up that term that is used there for great, that adjective is used in verse 2, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse chapter 4, verses 1, verse 6, and verse 11. Is that a lot of greats? And it's interesting, although not all of them, many of them are referring to the obstacles that Jonah had to confront and overcome. For instance, he hated Nineveh. Why? The text doesn't tell us why. But he hated them. Is that an obstacle when you're told to go somewhere and you hate them? Is that an obstacle? Absolutely. That's why it's the great city. Do you remember that? Jonah had great anger. Selfish anger. Is that an obstacle he had overcome? He had selfish joy. That had to be overcome. The wind was great. That had to be overcome. The storm was great. That had, every, not every time, but most of the time that word great is used. It's an obstacle that Jonah has to overcome. Isn't it a great thing that Christians today don't have any obstacles that hinder their obedience to God's commands? Reality is, every one of us have multiple of them. We're just not as honest as Jonah is. These obstacles is what Jonah writes were severe obstacles in his life. When serving God, all of us deal with severe obstacles. The frequency of this term great throughout the book may underscore the daunting nature of the divine call and the challenge it presented to Jonah's conventional thinking about divine election, divine mercy, and divine justice. How in the world? God, hold it. You told me that we are your chosen people. What are you doing? These guys are the ones that are out there killing us. They hate us, your chosen people, and you want me to go and tell them to repent? I don't understand that. How many can understand Jonah's dilemma? You just, my ancestors just came in and wiped out all of Canaan. There they are. They're wicked in your sight. And, and by the way, does God hate wickedness? Yes or no? Are Christians to hate wickedness? Yes or no? Did Jonah hate wickedness? Yes or no? Absolutely. So it's a head scratcher for Jonah. What? God, you just told me you're going to wipe them off, but they're wicked, and you want me to go preach to them to repent. I was with a pastor this week. 
one of the first things he said to me is that, you know, every preacher gives Jonah a bad rap. It's true. Then he goes on and says, he said this, tell me a book in the Bible where any other offer was so transparent in his sins and problems. I almost gave him a hug. He's exactly right. Exactly right. By the way, it doesn't make him godly. We're not going to sainthood Jonah. I'll get to that in a second because I wrote that exact thing. In order to understand what he's going to do now, we need to understand everything about Jonah biblically. In 2 Kings, we find, and this is so important, please listen. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, that's Jeroboam, the king of Israel. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made in Israel. He restored the border from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabia, according to the word of God, the God of Israel, which he spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Heifer. So Jonah prophesied, despite your wickedness, Jeroboam, God's going to bless Israel. Now, the Lord did not say he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them from the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This first Prophecy has to be understood to understand the mindset of, of Jonah. In other words, he just prophesied to his home country that is absolutely wicked. And he knows it, but yet God is going to spare, and not only spare, he is going to enhance and bless them. And on the heels of that passage of scripture comes Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, which is the, that's the next thing we hear about Jonah, or Nineveh for that sort. The Bible says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Is Israel wicked during Jonah's time? Absolutely. Did God tell Jonah to prophesy to Israel? Yes or no? Blessings. Absolutely. Did God bless it? Absolutely. Now God's telling him to have their enemies repent because of their what? Wickedness. So Jonah's experience is that what? You can be wicked and God's still going to, yeah, exactly. The two texts here, Jonah preaching to Israel in their wickedness, God blesses them greatly, despite their wickedness. Now he's being told to go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness. What's the next result? 
Israel and Nineveh are evil. The narrative in 2 Kings portrays Jonah as a prophet of salvation who foretold the restoration of Israel's borders by the hand of Jeroboam II, despite his wickedness. Jonah's announcement of God's gracious act of blessing Israel was when, in fact, she deserved punishment, provides an understanding foil, if you will, for the book of Jonah. God's mercy for Israel, despite their wickedness, should prepare Jonah for a similar act of mercy extended toward Nineveh. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair, and it's absolutely biblical. And it absolutely happened. The nature of Nineveh's wickedness in the form of aggression toward Israel and the reality of a unique covenant between Israel and God predisposes Jonah to object to any overtures of mercy God might have to such an ex <clears throat> exceedingly wicked people. God, we're your called people. They are wicked. They are killing your called people. I see that as a problem for Jonah. God's mercy extends well beyond Israel's border. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. And well beyond Jonah's comfort zone. Jonah might have characterized God's mercy as scandalously unjust. From Jonah's point of view, God's commission jeopardized both his unique relationship to Israel and Israel's existence as an independent country. Jonah's journey, and by the way, it's not only that, but this even happens more in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 36. Now, Isaiah happens just a little bit later. And by the way, Jonah wants Nineveh wiped off because they're the enemy of Israel. The reality is God does wipe them off, just not in Jonah's timing. How many understand that? The book of Isaiah, which happens just a, 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 a few decades after Jonah. Sennacherib, that is the king of Assyria, sends his emissary to Jerusalem with a stern warning that Jerusalem had better repent of her anti-Assyrian rebellion and resume payment of tribute or else suffer Sennacherib's wrath. What does that sound like? That sounds like the exact prophecy that was given to Jonah against Assyria. These are warring fashion people against each other. All human authority and freedom are circumscribed by God's greater authority and freedom, but unfortunately, we play God way too much. Did Jonah get ahead of God by not wanting to go and repent, or go to Nineveh and tell them to repent, yes or no? Absolutely. That, the text clearly bears that out. How many times do we get ahead of God because we don't think God's fast enough? Or stern enough. Again, it goes back to there's only one God and we are not Him. Jonah's flight underscores 
the truth that it's sometimes uncomfortable to live in the divine presence. God's uncompromising challenge to show mercy even to our enemies and thus become perfect as he is perfect can be frightening and overwhelming. It can even drive us into hiding. Jonah quickly discovered, however, that the presence he fled was the very presence he desperately needed. He constantly is fleeing, according to him, fleeing from God. But it's God's very presence that he needs to be. The only alternative to living in God's presence and embracing the challenge of God's call is to descend into chaos and to death. Jonah's rejection of the new frontiers open to him by God's challenging word condemns him to the depths. He may think that he is headed for distant and exotic places when he flees from God, but in reality, he is only headed to the grave. And that's going to become abundantly clear. Does Jonah know that he can't flee from God's presence? Well, this text clearly does say that he knows that. Matter of fact, David, the king of united Israel, states it this way. In Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, what? You're there. If I make my dead, dead bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle on the far side of the sea, even there will your hand guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And Jonah's going to learn that real quick. In the light of such confession, why in the world did Jonah have the idea that he could possibly escape from God's presence? I mean, that is a fascinating term. How do we run from God's presence? Can we run from God's presence? It's not even possible. Does Jonah know that? According to the text, we'll see, absolutely he knows that. So what is this talking about? The answer may be found in the Old Testament texts that describe banishment from God's presence as a punishment for certain sins. Let me tell you a, a man, let me introduce you to a man named Cain. Do you remember Cain? Cain was condemned to a life of aimless wandering for the crime of killing his brother Abel. When describing Cain's fate, the text says this, so Cain departed from the presence of God. It's almost word for word of what Jonah's talking about. We can find that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. And although God instigated this, he still departed from God's presence. Leviticus chapter 22 describes banishment from God's presence for anyone who approached holy offerings while in a state of ritual impurity. The Bible says this, anyone from all of your descendants through all of your generations who approached the holy donations that the Israelites sanctified for God while still in a state of ritual impurity will be cut off from my presence. I am God. So this is not the first time we find leaving or fleeing the presence of God. But these two times, God is the one that's initiated. 
They were removed from God's fellowship and denied the privileges of Israel's special relationship with God. This, no doubt, included denial of access to the temple and all of its sacred assemblies. But the real tragedy of such a fate is the loss of intimacy with God. Disobedience can and will erode one's relationship with the covenant Lord, which results in a loss of intimacy and eventually the loss of relationship altogether. Psalm 38 says this, when God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel so that he abandoned the dwelling place of Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among them. In chapter 3, we are going to find some issues that Jonah tells about himself, fleeing, and we're going to see those. I, he's going to repent is what he's going to do. While he's drowning, the seeds are wrapped with the seeds. The seaweed is wrapped around his neck, literally. And this whole statement in verse chapter 3 are, are his, if you will, repentance. Jeremiah says the same thing, cut off your hair and cast it away and take it up a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. In all of these texts, the banishment from God's presence occurs at God's initiative. It is a punishment he imposes rather than an escape of sinner may choose if he decides to be disobedient. And Jonah knows all this. Jonah knows that you can't literally escape from his presence. He's a prophet of God. We find that at least twice in the Old Testament and in the New Testament we find him. He is a God-fearer. And if you were in CE hour this morning, you know that is the what? It is the beginning of understanding who God is. You cannot know God unless we submit to God. Amen. <clears throat> he submitted to God, a God-fearer. Verse 9, he said in verse 9 also, this, they asked him, who is your God? Oh, he's the God that created the heaven. He created the sea and he created the earth. There's that. Was Jonah, let me ask you this. Did God, did Jonah know that God is merciful and graceful? Chapter 4, verse 2, absolutely. Jonah certainly knew his theology but he certainly and vehemently does not want to obey God's commission. Why? We're not told. And to attribute a reason why he does not want to see repentance from Nineveh is to go beyond the text and is opinion, not fact. By the way, what is the difference between Jonah and Christians today that don't want to obey God's commands? I have heard some say, well, Jonah was told to do something directly from God. Did you hear that? How many heard that? Jonah was told to do something directly from God. What's the difference between Jonah and Christians? It's, I'm still going to ask the same question. Let me ask you, were you told to do something directly from God? If we believe that if there's something greater, if we are told personally by his voice, we have more of a theological problem 
then we have a big problem. To argue that, well, it was, you know, Jonah, God talked to Jonah right to his face, and, and that changes everything. It doesn't change anything. Let me, let, me, let me be very clear. <clears throat> the difference between Jonah and Christians today is neither of them always obey God's commands. True. I've heard some say, well, there's, there's many motives created. There are many motives created. This is certainly one of the points of the purpose of the book of Jonah. There are a lot of reasons why we don't want to obey God. Let me ask you, are there a lot of reasons you don't want to obey God? Do we use reason not to obey God? Do we use other parts of God's word to not obey God? We do the same thing. To be honest, the church is full of Jonas. We are all Jonas in a sense. We must repent, we must obey, and stop looking at others' failures to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. Listen, the motive of Jonah is silent. But the principles of Jonah's relationship with God and the unsaved are extremely clear. Instead of roasting a disobedient child of God, oh, we would never do that. We must be humble and realize that all of us have been commissioned by God directly and we all have failed miserably. To quote Romans 12 through 14, we must not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I will tell you, when a legalist comes to the book of Jonah, they'll say this. Jonas, Jonah tells us how wicked other Christians can be. To a humble Christian, Jonah tells us this, how great a God that is. And how easily I can act just like Jonah. So I better take heed lest I fall. How many see the difference? I'm reading, I'm reading so many commentaries, but I want to read to you what one author, and he's so good at this because this is how he says it. This is the only one that says it this way. And he starts his 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 uh, uh, points this way. Maybe, thank you. Because he's going to spray, maybe this is Jonah's problem, or maybe this is Jonah's problem. Maybe this, we don't know. But he starts it with maybe. How many understand that? Maybe Jonah, by fleeing his commission, is trying to force God's hand to impose on him such a banishment and thus disqualify him for God's service. We don't know. Maybe. Maybe Jonah believes that such a severe punishment is better than the consequences of fulfilling God's commission regarding Nineveh. Maybe, but we don't know. Maybe Jonah is willing to die before he sees Nineveh repent. Maybe. Why is Jonah so against this commission? I will tell you 
I am convinced biblically. I get Jonah and why he didn't want to obey. I don't agree that he, I, he should have obeyed. But it's understandable. The terror that the Assyrians inspired in the hearts of the inhabitants of, of Israel, God's commission is, from Jonah's perspective, simply unreasonable. At the same time, however, Jonah's flight reveals how far removed from Jonah, how far removed from faith compared to Abraham. Because God did this. Remember what God did? Abraham, go sacrifice your son. God, you're against murder. I'm not going to do that. That's not what Abraham did. He said, God, I, I will obey. Jonah was faced with the same situation, similar situation, and he refused. Abraham did obey. The fact that Jonah had to pay for the vessel, which we talked about last week and its crew, expresses also this. It expresses that to disobey costs a whole lot more than to obey. Amen. No question. God, if he calls you to someplace, he's going to give the provision to do so. Because God is a God of providence, and providence demands multiple causations. And God's in charge of all those multiple causations, as we will see. Jonah, by the way, how many think Jonah's the only one that flee, fled from his calling of God? How many think when you compare Jonah to, let's, I'm just going to give you a few. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah. Which one do we, th we think immediately, oh, that's a bad one because he fled from the obedience from obeying God. Which one is it? Jonah. Do you know Elijah fled from obeying God? He did. Jo or Elijah sought refuge. What happened was he fled from the ministry when Jezebel threatened his life after his great victory over the prophets of Baal, or Baal, on Mount Carmel. He fled from Jezebel. Why? Why did he flee from Jezebel? Was his life in danger? What do you think Jonah thought? But we do this, don't we? We judge motives of these people, of God, and we thought, well, we would never do that. That's baloney. That is baloney. Ministry is difficult. And it's because of what we face, both not only outside the faith community, but also inside the faith community. In the faith community, in the face of such opposition, even God's faithful servants are tempted to retreat to a safe haven somewhere. They feel safer. But ministry isn't only hard because of we're working with people inside and out of the church. 
But ministry is also difficult because of the demanding nature of the divine mercy that God's servants are required to proclaim to unsavory and undeserving people. And I am one of those undeserving people. This sometimes brings God's servant into conflict with God himself, sending them running not toward but away from the ministry they've been called to. Thankfully, God's response in both cases is loving correction, reassurance, and redirection. One author says, and I agree with him 100%, this is a story of the relentless pursuit of God's mercy. How many of you love your children as they are disobeying you? That's what God is going to show. Now, let's look at the text specifically. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. The first word, hurled, has this idea we already talked about. It's mentioned three times in the text. Then the great, the great is over and over, we see that. What happens then? So it's interesting, this great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. There's so much here. As, as we can notice, we're going to notice shortly here, that the writer of Jonah contrasts people in their actions. And on the boat, we will find that he's going to, there's going to be a debate and a discussion, finally, on what is being said. So, the Lord hurt, hurled a great wind of the sea. Then what happens? The sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo same word, which was in the ship into the sea to lighten for them. But Jonah had gone in below into the hold of the ship, laying down and followed asleep. I love this. I love this. So what was the action that was against God and Jonah? God told him to go up. What did he do? Went down. And we saw all the going downs already. Look at this text. He, again, he continues. You see this? He continues. Jonah, gone below, laying down. <clears throat> Do you see how <laughs> it's the exact opposite? And he uses these terms. Why does he use those terms? He's showing I did exactly opposite of what God wanted. I did the exact opposite. He is revealing his sin to everyone. Let me ask you. Jonah being the author explaining all this, is he a very proud person? What would happen if we were to confess our sins to one another, our shortcomings to one another. I will tell you this, I've been in religion for almost 55 years.
I can't give you on one hand how many people have come to me and said, listen, pastor, can you help me with this? I struggle in this area. What does this text say? Why? Why is that? We're so afraid. Why? Because we're all legalists, in a sense. I don't want people to think bad of me. So I'm going to show up in a good face. Well, that's fraud. That's absolute fraud, is it not? In other words, we're no different than the Democrat and the Republicans. They're liars. And they show a good face. Sometimes. There's no difference. The book of Jonah deliberately contrasts Jonah and these gentle Gentile mariners. How does it? The mariners are struggling through the unit to save a lot, to stay alive. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. They were freaked out. How many would say that's true? They were, what are we going to do? And here's why. How many remember seeing um, God faces or carvings on different ships? When you think of that type, that age, you know, you have on the big bow, you have a big dragon on it or something. Why did they do that? They did that because they all understood that there was a God of the sea, a God of the land, and they were trying to appease that God by putting some kind of thing on their ship that then we could have safe travel. So that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're praying to their God of the sea, whoever that may be. Say, please help us. They realized that wasn't going to happen, so they needed to step up themselves. So they started throwing the cargo from the ship into the sea. Why? To lighten it up. How many have ever been in a very heavy boat? How many have ever been in a heavy boat? Where it's like this far from the... I remember Lake Split Hand and a 14-foot John boat with my whole graduating class of boys. Instantly, you know exactly what happened. I remember my wife freaking out on Lake Moose Lake because we got on this pontoon with my eldest son in the arms of my wife, and we told, we said, anybody wants to come can come, and they all did. <laughs> and by the time we were halfway over by where Moose and Deer are like right across the road from each other. The boat had four inches of water. The entire boat had four inches of water as we were cruising through the water. Uh, and so we had to balance. It was just a mess. It's not fun. What does the sea look like here? I thought I had a picture. I, I didn't. I didn't save it. I don't know why I didn't do that. I thought I put it down. You'll have to understand that in an ocean, you know when a big storm's coming, correct? Because it's so vast, and it takes so long for it to come. Now, yes, they can pop out of nowhere, I get that. But it's that's why if you've ever watched Deadliest Catch, which most of you probably have and know what it's talking about, you've got on the radio, hey, there's a gale storm, we gotta get out of here. Coast Guard said, get out of here. Why? They know it's coming. The Mediterranean Sea is similar, not exact, similar to the Great Lakes. Why? It's not this huge, vast thing. Now, 
The Mediterranean Sea is 30 times the size of Lake Superior. So it's much bigger. But the point of the matter is the same. You have winds coming from the north out of the, out of the deserts, right? From the north out of the gale winds. And you've got all this coming together in one place. Because the land deals differently with storms than the ocean does. And when they hit water, things change. Just like when they hit mountains, things change. This storm was horrendous. And not only was it a horrendous storm. And it, by the way, was this storm natural? Is a wind natural? Is a storm natural? This is called providence causation. God uses nature to create discipline. Amen. He's got everything under his control. And he flung the wind. And this huge storm erupts. And these guys who are relying on a fake God are scared to death. And they're throwing out thousands or millions of dollars to save their own life. And look at the difference. The mariners struggled throughout the, throughout the text here to stay alive. Jonah, by contrast, does what? He goes and plays Nintendo in the bottom of the ship. Let me ask you, does he do something totally opposite as the other guys? They're totally opposite. Exact opposite. He goes and lays down. He falls asleep. So what happens? You can continue. We're going to continue. I'm just going to give you the heads up. Because we, we're not really in the text, but I want, I mean, we're not, this is leaving chapter, verse 4, but we're going to come back, okay? The mariners display a hunger for revelation by casting lots. We don't know what's going on. Let's cast lots. <laughs> and they question Jonah. So they are hungry for revelation. How can we stop this? Jonah is running from God's revelation. And then he shares what he knows about the God of the storm. We find in, later on in this chapter that the mariners pray frequently and fervently, initially to false gods, but finally to God. In Jonah, there is no mention of him praying to God while in that ship. Not one. God expresses his wrath by means of a fierce storm at sea that sabotaged Jonah's escape. The bulk of the narrative is devoted to divine rebuke in order to emphasize the severity of Jonah's rebellion. It was severe. It was wrong. It was sinful. It was wicked. But to go beyond that is to go beyond the text. God's appointment of the great fish to swallow Jonah reassured the prophet that God not, had not abandoned him to the grave despite his disobedience and his death wish. This was a divinely induced storm. By the way, this is so interesting. In Jeremiah, let me read to you 
um, what what Jeremiah talks about and, and see if there's some ringing similarities with Jonah. For who of their number, the text says, has stood in God's counsel that he might witness and overhear his deliberation? Who among them have given undivided attention to my message and obeyed it? Beware of God's gale. A hot blast has shot out and a storm is churning. Over the head of the wicked it will explode. God's wrath will not retreat until he has accomplished, until he has established his strategy. In days to come you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. If only they had stood in my counsel that they might announce my words to my people and steer them away from their disastrous path and from their evil deeds. Does that sound a lot like Jonah? And that's in Jeremiah. That's totally different. Now this text is directly directed at false prophets who preached even though they had never even received revelation from God. And God is treating Jonah as a false prophet now. He's doing the same things against them, against Jonah as he would to these, <clears throat> to these other false prophets. For those whom he had received revelation for which we all have in our possession and refuse to share it, we are just as culpable as those who prophesy falsely. So it's interesting that the Bible says the ship was about to break in verse 4, I think. The ship was about to break up. The ship has a reaction to the storm. The brief mention of the ship's reaction to the storm has long confused interpreters. And frankly, to be honest with you, Jonah has confused interpreters. The author personifies the ship because in the Hebrew it says, as for the ship, it threatened to burst apart. The personification of the ship is also explicable in terms of common belief held by the mariners. The ship, as well as the wind, as well as the sea, all were being used by God in a real sense. Let me ask you, did God use the ship for Jonah? Did God use the sea and the storm and the wind for Jonah? All that is within God's providential will. Creation serves as messengers of divine wrath and model of obedience to the divine call, both roles intended for Jonah. They were, afraid, they were afraid. Each one cried out to its own God, and they started freaking out by throwing thousands of dollars out of the hold, which is the whole reason they're out there. And Jonah, and I'm going to leave with this because this is so important, and Jonah did what? Jonah laid down and fell asleep. Now, 
when God prophesied to people, did he sometimes put them in a deep slumber or deep sleep? Absolutely. Was this what he was talking about? Well, the helmsman, the Gentile helmsman, comes down to Jonah and asks, how can you be sleeping? Then do you know what he says? He says, get up and cry out to your God. What did God say that Jonah needs to do? Get up and go cry from God to Nineveh to repent. God uses the wicked helmsman to repeat the command he gave to Jonah. How many understand this? This is it matches exactly the first and the last commands of God's commission to Jonah. The helmsman, in essence, echoed the commission. And Jonah woke up to the sound of the same two commands from which he had been hiding. Jonah's attempt to escape this call and ignore God's revelation were futile. The commission haunted him, even in the bowels of the shipfold. Folks, if you're truly one of his children, God will relentlessly pursue you in mercy. He said, well, you don't understand what I've done. We've all done wicked things. But God relentlessly pursues his children no matter what. How dare we look down our nose at Jonah when that same wickedness overcomes us daily. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. You say, well, that's salvation. Yeah, it's also Christian living. Salvation, at least the unsaved don't, some of them have an excuse not to repent because they've never heard. We don't have any excuse to not repent. We're his children. Say, well, that's pretty humbling. That's the point. Well, people aren't going to look at me as a good guy. They shouldn't. You're a sinner, saved by grace, period. If we are going to grow, we need to be honest. And to throw another God-fearer under the bus to make us look good is absolute wickedness, legalistic wickedness. Let me ask you one last question. Is Jonah just a simple story? Oh my goodness. No, no, a million times no. But how many of us come to the book of Jonah thinking we know everything about it and if we hear something different <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not humility. 
That's prideful arrogance and legalism. Folks, this is a deep book. The way it is written is unmatched, unique. I pray that the Lord will help me study through it to learn what his purpose was in each word. And I pray all of us will grow as a result. Amen? All right, Mr. Gaiman, can you close us in my prayer, please? Please stand and we'll be dismissed after I pray. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture. Thank you that the Old Testament is relevant for us today, giving us guidance, showing us our own weaknesses, and showing us your character. Thank you for all these things and continue to teach us and then help us apply what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen.